Hi, this is uh, Dr. Pedro Ramirez, Editor-in-Chief of the International Journal of Gynecological Cancer. And uh, today I have the great pleasure of speaking with my dear colleague and friend, uh, Dr. René Pareja, who is at the Instituto Nacional de Cancerología in Bogotá, Colombia, and also at Clinica Astorga in Medellín, Colombia. He's also one of the associate editors of our journal. And uh, the topic of this discussion, it's uh, going to be addressing some points of controversy and the management of patients with cervical cancer, um, having an opportunity to discuss uh, some of the updates that have been uh, recently released um, by the ESGO guidelines in cervical cancer. And, uh, and always it's, uh, it's a pleasure to, to uh, speak to Rene um, and learn from him about the management of cervical cancer. So, Rene, thank you so much for being part of the podcast. Pedro, thank you very much for this kind invitation. Always it's a pleasure being here with you. Excellent. So, Rene, as you know, the, the ESGO guidelines were recently released for cervical cancer, um, and uh, we have it as the lead article uh, in this uh, month's journal. We're going to have a journal club as well. Uh, so I think that this is very timely. Uh, to discuss uh, some of the points that were raised in the guidelines. And again, this uh, this, this podcast is aimed to uh, serve as a forum for discussion and to highlight some of the issues that might seem somewhat controversial in the, in the recent guidelines, but as well also obviously to focus on um, what are the recommendations overall for patients with cervical cancer. So I want to start by first discussing uh, where we are currently on tumors that are less than two centimeters in early cervical cancer, and this particularly referring to the standard uh, squamous cell carcinoma, adenocarcinoma, or adenosquamous carcinoma. Uh, reason for, for this uh, question, obviously, um, as we all know, uh, we're uh, soon to learn the results of the, uh, of the SHAPE uh, trial, and um, in uh, this, I think, is a great opportunity to go over some of the details of what are the latest recommendation if we have a patient that has a cervical cancer less than two centimeter. What are your thoughts, Renee, on the, on the ideal management for these patients? Thank you, Pedro. Um, I would like to consider the two possible scenarios. One is fertility preservation, and the other is definitive treatment. For patients willing to preserve fertility potential, we have the conserve. Uh, which was a feasibility study, and also the recently published and controversial lesser trial showing no differences in, in, the, in the outcome. And we are still waiting for the results of GOG278 from Alcovens uh, addressing this issue in patients uh, looking for preserving fertility potential. I think we have enough evidence and prospective evidence to consider this kind of management in patients wishing to preserve fertility potential, particularly because I don't think that would be possible to perform a prospective randomized clinical trial <laughs> comparing conization plus radical trachelectomy. We won't have enough number of patients. So I think we should consider it strongly in this special, in, in special population. Otherwise, uh, in, in the other hand, the definitive treatment, uh, we, we are away about four weeks <laughs> to know the result of CHAPE trial. If CHAPE trial uh, 
is in concordance with the lot of retrospective literature on the treatment on two more less than two centimeters, it will practice changing one. And probably the radical treatment will disappear from this very selected group of patients. I have to note that in ESGO guidelines, they refer to patients that had undergone a colonization with a tumor less than two centimeters, and they recommend um, also minimal invasive surgery. Uh, after lab trial, showing no differences in complications and no differences in quality of life, I think personally, I don't pretend to offer anyone, this is a waste of time because th there is no difference in the things that I patient related. Probably surgeons are, are thinking in, in their own benefit on how comfortable are they performing robotic surgery or laparoscopic surgery. But regarding to patient outcomes, there is no difference, Pedro. Yeah. So Renee, I think that you, you brought up uh, some very good points. And, and I'd like to go back uh, to the points you mentioned regarding fertility preservation in less than two centimeters. I agree with you that we seem to have uh, increasing evidence that it will be safe to uh, potentially offer patients with less than two centimeters um, fertility preservation, uh, particularly, you know, given the results of the CONSERVE trial where um, patients were offered uh, conization plus uh, lymphatic mapping. Um, it is very important to highlight to uh, our audience that in the CONSERVE trial, which was a prospective study of 100 patients, um, patients needed to have a conization with completely negative margins. So this is uh, really key and important um, to, to highlight to uh, physicians, practitioners, that if considering the um, conservative management, the patients have to have a margin that is negative on that conization and that a lymph node evaluation is still um, uh, recommended. The, the, you know, certainly the, the, uh, the, the other uh, component to, to remember is that the conserve uh, trial was not uh, intended to evaluate oncologic outcomes. Of course, we look at the recurrence rate, uh, which is about 3% uh, th or so in, in the overall uh, patient population. Um, but again, this was not a study that confirms the oncologic safety of, the, of this particular approach. I think you also raised a, an important point in that, you know, when you mentioned, well, it's impossible to do a prospective randomized trial of cone versus radical trachelectomy. Um, I think it's uh, obviously very important to highlight that the reason for that is because these are very low numbers of events in terms of recurrences. So it's not that the, the population is not there, um, but it's just that you would need a significant number of patients, well over a thousand patients, if not more, um, to do an adequate comparison of cone versus uh, radical trachelectomy. So I think, you know, absolutely right. Uh, we have the conserve uh, to support that um, one can potentially offer this option safely to patients, but, uh, but also um, obviously we're, we're awaiting additional uh, study results from GOG 278 as well. Um, and of course the results of the, of the SHAPE trial. So then that brings me to the point that you raised um, with regards to the minimally invasive approach. 
Um, if the shape shows that we are able to safely perform simple hysterectomy in patients less than two centimeters, um, one of the main questions that many patients will have is, well, um, can I have this procedure by a minimally invasive approach? And, you know, certainly, obviously, we'll need to see what the data shows on the presentation of the SHAPE trial at the upcoming ASCO meeting, but we will def definitely also need to determine um, what percentage of patients in the, in the SHAPE trial had a minimally invasive surgery. Um, and in addition to that, you know, certainly the, the SHAPE trial was not a, a study looking at comparison of, of minimally invasive versus open. But presumably, most likely, since many of those patients were accrued prior to the publication of the LAC trial, that um, many of those patients will have had minimally invasive surgery. And we'll have to see if there was any type of signal that suggested that there was higher recurrences in the minimally invasive arm. Um, so again, uh, looking forward to, to those results. I wanted to then obviously ask you, can we assume that the statement position of the ESGO guidelines regarding minimally invasive surgery in these patients, um, you know, certainly should we assume that this is a, an adequate recommendation based on the fact that there's really no prospective data to uh, support MIS in minimally invasive surgery in less than two centimeters? Um, what are your thoughts? Pedro, in the new guidelines, this is supported by a level four of evidence and a level four of evidence is equivalent to a conversation with a friend in a bar. So th there is no literature <laughs> really supporting strongly this kind of recommendation. So this is a real expert recommendation. So you can have another expert another expert person recommending doing radical surgery in those patients because we don't have enough information. And probably we want, as you mentioned before, the the name of the number of outcomes are quite low in these special populations. So maybe maybe at the end will be the same to offer radical hist or sorry minimal invasive approach or open approach. But again, I think this is not a matter of interest because there is no difference regarding quality of life and complications. So again. What is the benefit? Who is the person who received the benefit? The surgeon? This is not the kind of science uh, we want to see. Yeah, yeah. So I, I think it's, uh, you know, it's important to, to highlight that, that in, in that patient population, um, there is no prospective data that shows that MIS is safe in that, in that patient population. And again, I mean, obviously, one could uh, one can propose and say, well, the next uh, study should be MIS versus open in less than two centimeters. But again, that that will be embarking on, on another study of of hundreds of of patients, uh, if not thousands of patients, um, to to answer that question. Now, before we leave the the topic of the shape um, trial, uh, presume presumably, if there is no difference between simple hysterectomy versus radical hysterectomy in this patient population of less than two centimeters um, as a result of the SHAPE trial. Um, as you know, there's two ongoing trials, the, the RAC and the ROC trial looking at open versus minimally invasive. 
in um, patients undergoing radical hysterectomy. Um, what are your thoughts with regards to, should there be amendments to those uh, trials as it pertains to inclusion criteria for patients uh, being considered for this approach? This is a quite interesting question. Unfortunately, it doesn't rely on my opinion. <laughs> it relies on the opinion of the IRBs <laughs> behind those, those projects. But if you have a prospective evidence of uh, known difference in performing radical versus simple hysterectomy, probably the IRBs will ask for amendments in, in a couple in, in the couple of studies. And for RAD trial from my good friend Henrik, probably they will have more much problems because they have accrued more than 500 patients. But rock trials by Mario will suffer a, a very important modification because the issue to address will be the utility and the oncological safety of radical hysterectomy performed by minimal invasive in tumors two to four centimeters. And, and in these special populations, a lot of retrospective uh, literature demonstrates a worse oncological outcome after minimal invasive surgery. So I think if the, the, the SHAPE trial is a positive one, uh, both will be in, in trouble. Yeah, and it'll be um, it'll be interesting to see what the impact is uh, um, on these uh, on these two studies. And you know, as you mentioned, um, of course, obviously, ideally, one would want to refrain from um, implementing um, many amendments um, that would potentially impact patient accrual. But I think that that may be potentially uh, a necessity in uh, in these studies uh, if the shape shows that patients with less than two centimeters do not need um, a radical um, hysterectomy. So more to come on that. Um, so now, you know, you mentioned the, the two to four centimeters. Um, I wanted to ask you about that patient population because I think that in that patient population, one still... Um, considers that those patients still need a radical hysterectomy. Um, but obviously, as you get closer to four centimeters, we all know that the, the rate of adjuvant treatment progressively increases. And my question is, your thoughts in that patient population with the improvement in imaging modalities, do you think we will be able to better define who is the ideal candidate for a radical hysterectomy versus chemotherapy and radiation. Are we moving towards, uh, you know, certainly looking at patients that perhaps have tumors greater than three centimeters uh, going straight to chemo radiation? And again, I mean, obviously none of the guidelines suggest that, but uh, I am aware of a number of institutions that are actually moving that size criteria down to three centimeters because of the fact that many patients uh, that begin in that three to four centimeter range most likely will have a uh, deep invasion or potentially close margins, uh, higher risk of lymph node involvement. So I was just wondering, what, what are your thoughts uh, with regards to that population of two to four centimeters? Uh, thank you, Pedro. I, I don't remember any study comparing this issue to radical hysterectomy up front versus radiotherapy up front in this particular size. I, I don't remember the study. 
So I need to remember that in Sedley's trial, all the patients underwent radical hysterectomy. So there were no comparison group undergoing upfront chemo radiation. Additionally, additionally, um, all of us have that war, one of our aims when doing radical hysterectomy is to avoid double treatment. So just radical or just uh, chemoradiotherapy, but not combining because old literature have shown an increase in the number of complications. But I'm concerned about new literature on the issue. It, what if those patients undergoing RADHIS with clear indication of adjuvant treatment are irradiated with IMRT or amyloid guide brachytherapy? Do we have the same morbidity right now in 2023 as in the 80s or the 90s when the articles were published? I, I'm, I have doubts on we have the same morbidity. So I, I, I'm not in favor to move to manage those patients with tumors larger than three centimeters with, without any strong evidence we can do that. Yeah. Um, now, Rene, the, another question that comes up often um, in patients who are undergoing a radical hysterectomy is the issue of removing the tubes and ovaries. Um, you know, certainly one can argue for removing the tubes, but um, what about removing the tubes and ovaries? Uh, when should that be done? Um, and, you know, is there any data or anything that was presented at the ESCO guidelines as it, as it pertains to support in performing oophorectomy in women who have uh, HPV negative tumors? Yeah, <laughs> interesting. It's a very interesting question. I remember a publication from Marie Plant about eight or 10 years ago about the need of removing the ovaries uh, when doing a radical hysterectomy for adenocarcinoma. HPV negative is a relatively new issue in, in the literature and uh, was recently incorporated in the, in the pathological classification. So we don't have enough information for determining that we should castrate women with 30, 35 years, 27 years, in order to avoid relapses in the ovaries because an ovarian relapse is a, is a rare condition, even in, in endocarcinoma. And having concomitant involvement is, is also rare. So I think there is no strong support for performing ophorectomies, particularly in young women. On the other side, we have enough and strong evidence on how harm this population regarding cardiovascular disease, osteoporosis, and, and the number of deaths. So those patients without ovaries before menopause will die more just for not having ovaries. So we should consider that in order to adapt this kind of recommendation. Yeah, in a, in a recent uh, podcast that I would invite um, ho all who are listening, uh, the podcast that I did uh, for the lead article with um, Professor David Sibula, you know, one of the uh, points that came up was that if patients are noted to have evidence of metastatic disease to the lymph nodes, that now those patients are considered stage three patients. And therefore, that it would seem reasonable to perform an oophorectomy 
given the advanced stage of disease. Um, what, what, what are your thoughts on that? I don't think that performing a forectomy will change the prognosis already given by having pelvic nodal involvement because women with pelvic nodal involvement, according to a paper published about, about two years ago by, by Jason Wright, the five years overall survival is 60%. And in patients with paraortic nodal involvement, 32 patients, the five years overall survival is 37.5%. So having nodal involves are by themselves strong predictors of a bad oncological outcome. So I, I think that ophorectomy cannot have the power to change this bas ba basal condition. Very well. So now, since we're on the topic of uh, lymph nodes, um, you know, certainly I know that there has been a trend in the United States to change over to just symptom lymph node mapping in the setting of cervical cancer. Uh, we're still awaiting uh, additional results from the Centicle series. Uh, what do you think should be the best approach for lymph node assessment in cervical cancer today? Lymphadenectomy or sentinel lymph node mapping? From my personal point of view, it should be sentinel node mapping. And the frozen sections, uh, it is not quietly used in, in, in the United States. So because you will have the final uh, report and you will take the, the conduct after having or not uh, nodal involvement. But by the Europeans have been very difficult to accept this without having a level one evidence. So the guidelines will not change that need to do frozen sections after having the results of Centix and Centicle tree. So we have about five years away that the European guidelines accept uh, just sentinel node detection as the only procedure to assess the nodal status. And then with um, with regards to, you mentioned frozen section. Um, what do you think about the frozen section of sentinel lymph nodes? What's the accuracy of that? You know, there's been discussions about whether you really are um, doing a proper assessment of that lymph node after having done a frozen section? Uh, is there enough tissue that remains? And I noticed that um, the ESCO guidelines also suggest that if doing a frozen section and the sentinel lymph node is negative, then the recommendation is for a full lymphadenectomy. Uh, what, what are your thoughts on that? <laughs> yes. <laughs> As I said before, it's, it's difficult to, to go with if you have a negative frozen section results, you have to proceed with a pelvic lymphadenectomy. You have to remember that lymphadenectomy is an important issue that we can be present in up to 40% of the patients. So they, they won't change this policy until they have randomized prospective data. Uh, regarding the positivity of Sentinel node, the detection rate can vary in the in the old patients by Angel Bats, the I remember the sensitivity of 19%. By now, David Sibula has reported sensitivities up to 47%. So if the lymph 
node is positive in presentation, they abort the surgery according to Abrax results, which is a retrospective trial. Uh, but if the lymph node is negative, they proceed with full lymphadenectomy. So they trust in the procedure if it is positive, but they don't trust in it if it is negative. I think it is, this is contradictory. Yeah, and, and I, uh, I agree with you as a follow-up to that is that, you know, certainly it, there has been enough data to suggest that if the sentinel lymph node is negative, then the likelihood of non-sentinel lymph nodes being positive is quite low. So therefore, I, uh, I also question uh, the rationale for considering a full lymphonectomy if you have a negative sentinel lymph node on frozen section. So now let's talk about imaging. Um, you know, certainly I think that it has become a standard for patients to have imaging prior to a, uh, a radical hysterectomy. And generally that, depending on the setting, and you can tell me certainly what what, a, what is it like in, in Latin America, but depending on the setting in the United States is usually an MRI or a PET-CT, sometimes a combination of, of both. Um, there's, there's a lot of emphasis uh, in these guidelines uh, with regards to a, quote, well-trained radiologist uh, in performing also ultrasound. Um, what, what are your thoughts with regards to the utility of, A, these suggested imaging modalities, and B, the training of radiologists that are competent in ultrasound in regions where there is cervical cancer, primarily, of course, Latin America, Africa, low and middle income countries in Asia. What are your thoughts? I'd like to apologize for what I'm saying, but ESGO guidelines are guidelines for rich countries and rich patients. So this is not applicable to the real world of cervical cancer. 85% of cases every year happens in low and middle income countries and 90% of deaths occur in low and middle income countries. So this is a guideline for basically countries with high resources. Regarding ultrasound, I think there is a, a bias here because uh, David Sibola worked with Daniela Fischerova, who is the master in uh, ultrasound uh, staging. Even in, in ovarian cancer, in endometrial, uh, I have attended conferences with, with her and it is impressive, her performance. But you, you will need a Daniela Fischerova in every single center uh, seeing patients with cervical cancer, which is impossible. Also in Italy, there, there is people who are training in France, maybe in Spain, but in Latin America, I don't know any person doing ultrasound in order to stage gynecological conditions, gynecological malignant conditions. I don't know. I another issue to consider is this is pretty operator dependent. So the reliability and the reproducibility should be heavily evaluated and compared because the ultrasound diagnosis start 
behind the eyes of the guy seeing the examination, not in the machine. And this is a factor very difficult to, to get controlled. Yeah, and, and then, you know, as you mentioned, of course, obviously, there are individuals, as you mentioned, uh, um, Daniela Fischerova and uh, Antonia Testa, who are masters of, of uh, the evaluation of uh, pelvic malignancies with ultrasound. Um, but this is, uh, this is key to remember that in the regions where there may not be this level of expertise, you're going to be basically relying on, on potentially an ultrasonographer who may not be as proficient to make a decision about surgery versus chemotherapy and radiation in a young woman. So I think that needs to be um, taken very uh, seriously when considering that as a recommendation. Now, I wanna to talk to you before we get into uh, some of the more advanced uh, tumors, but I wanna to talk to you about um, the indications for adjuvant treatment. And I know that for years we have followed the set list criteria uh, there's an ongoing study led by also David Sibula uh, called the Cervantes trial. Um, tell us a little bit more about that study and, and uh, your thoughts with regards to whether it's a study that um, should be considered for, for opening in your institution or in other Latin American institutions. Uh, I am convinced that we need the Cervantes trial because Cedric's trial is already outdated. As I remember, 20% of the patients had tumors larger than four centimeters. And now, who is taking to OR a patient with a tumor larger than four centimeters? Almost, almost, almost anybody, nobody. So uh, we need to refine the criteria because we are giving a lot of adjuvant treatment because it seems that every institution has hit own interpretation of Sedley's criteria. And this mm, is reflected in a human rate of 32%, 38%, 42%, 54%. Uh, so combined treatment, I'm, I'm not concerned about the, the, the morbidity about modern combination treatment. I am concerned about the cost. And I am concerned about the potential long-term morbidity of radiotherapy in those patients. So definitively, we need to run Cervantes trial. We need to run it in, in, in Latin America. Now, Mexico, National Cancer Institute, already will start the, the, the Cervantes trial, but also in N in Peru will start about three or four centers in Argentina, three or four centers in Colombia. And the Brazilians also uh, are willing to take part on Cervantes trial after finishing the recru recruitment for Centicle 3. So we were discussing during the last year, and uh, I hope that many institutions from Latin America can take part in, in Cervantes trial. Great. Um, Rene, now, what about the patients who have what is called an inadvertent hysterectomy? In other words, the patients who should have had a radical but did not and had a simple hysterectomy, generally because a general gynecologist uh, took the patient to the operating room because of a few bleeding or inappropriate workup of, um, of uh, abnormal pap smears. Um, what should be the recommendation today for patients who happen to have undergone this simple hysterectomy when they required a radical hysterectomy? In other words, is there still a role today for radical parametrectomy? 
thank you, Pedro. Unfortunately, this is a pretty common condition in Latin America because mm. a lot of gynecologists think that the treatment of CIN3 is a hysterectomy and the guidelines are pretty clear contraindicating the procedure as the main approach for a CIN3. So all the patients with CIN3 should undergo an iconization. If you have to perform the hysterectomy after that, it is your problem, but the conization is mandatory in order to avoid this particular problem. So we have two kinds of patients here. The patient with a five centimeters tumor visible that was operated by with the intention and with the knowing that he has a, a, a tumor. So if the patient came to you with a five centimeters tumor or parametrial involvement that we can see with uh, frequently in Colombia, the patient should be sent for, for radiotherapy. So if the patient has indication for radiotherapy, should we send for radiotherapy? Uh, radical colparametrectomy, either abdominal or, or by minimally invasive approach, should be reserved for those patients with low risk tumors in the surgical specimen. So tumor less than two centimeters without any involvement of the margins, without the parametrial involvement. Also, they, they don't have, by definition, parametria, but in the, in the size of the cervix. And I think we indicate those radical colpoparametrectomy and pelvic lymphadenectomy. We published together people from a hospital in Medellin and MD Anderson, uh, 36 women undergoing colpoparametrectomies uh, with low risk features. So all of them with tumor less than two centimeters and we have no residual disease, no, no margin involvement, no nodal disease and no relapses and deaths after a, a follow-up about 72 months. So we recommended at that time in those patients just to perform a, a lymph node assessment. Uh, and we were doing this for many years, but in conserve, <laughs> this population from, from 16 patients, we included with an advertent cervical cancer, 12 relapsed and relapsed distally. So 12.5% of relapse is enough to avoid just lymphadenectomy after a diagnosis of an advertent cervical cancer. You have two options, to take the patient to OR and perform a colpoparametrectomy with lymphadenectomy or to send her to, to OR. There is a very special population of women having microinvasive tumors, a tumor of two, two millimeters of invasion, 2.5, three millimeters. We used to discuss those patients in, in multidisciplinary tumor boards and sometimes we decide close follow-up, but it should be supported by, by a multidisciplinary team. Very well. Now, Rene, um, I, I know you, uh, you have obviously uh, given many lectures on, on this topic, um, and uh, I wanted to ask you, any role today for neoadjuvant chemotherapy in cervical cancer? Uh, in definite treatment, no. We have two randomized clinical trials, the, the GUPTA trial and the ERTC-55994 um, showed by Landoni in Rio de Janeiro, not published yet, uh, showing no benefit when adding neoadjuvant chemotherapy uh, before, before surgery. Uh, 
there is a special role in fertility preserving soil. I am convinced that patients with tumors to two to four centimeters should receive the benefit of uh, neoadjuvant chemotherapy because the fertility preservation rate is close to 88%, 88%. When you perform upfront radical trachelectomies in patients with two to four centimeters, the fertility preservation rate, preservation rate uh, ranges between 30 and 40%. And you cannot say a couple looking at you for doing a fertility preservation and you say, yeah, my rate of fertility preservation is 30%. So I think neoadjuvant chemotherapy is a very useful tool in two to four centimeters. Uh, on the other hand, the relapse rate is 12%, but the death rate is 3%. So you have to, to be aware of that. The, the, but I think it's, it's very useful in, in this population. Yeah, and particularly for this population, there is a, an ongoing trial, the Contessa, yes. uh, looking at neoadjuvant chemotherapy that, you know, certainly if a patient qualifies, that patient should be considered for that particular trial if it is open in their uh, respective institution. So now, Renee, let's uh, switch gears. Let's go into the locally advanced disease. Um, you know, certainly now we have PET-CT and we feel that PET-CT certainly can add significant value. Um, interestingly, in the ESCO guidelines, I believe I saw that surgical staging is still offered as a potential consideration, even though the uterus 11 was a negative trial. So what are your thoughts as it pertains to these recommendations and the data that we have from uterus 11? Should patients with locally advanced disease still undergo surgical staging? Pedro, I'm, I'm really concerned and worried about that because we have prospective randomized level one evidence. So the recommendation should be E. So against the procedure, because the level of evidence is one, the, the, the best level of evidence we have. I think there is a regional preference for still performing surgical staging, but uh, we have to consider two things, the PET-CT. Uh, uh, uterus 11 authors stated clearly that in Germany, PET-CT is not covered by the public health system. I would like to ask the authors if PET-CT is available for all the population in Czech Republic, United Kingdom, France, Spain, Italy, because it's quite difficult to afford it. It's a very expensive exam, ex imagine exam. So, at least in Latin America, this is impossible to have a PET-CT for every single patient with uh, and locally advanced uh, cervical cancer. And second and more important, although we are able to operate on periaortic region and to dissect completely the vena cava and the aorta until the left renal vein, we cannot operate on the risk factor than its present implies in the oncological prognosis of the patient. In other words, if a patient debut or presents with pelvic nodal involvement, it has a given prognosis factor. If the patient has periaortic nodal involvement, they live less than just less than 40% at five years because of having nodal involvement. So this is a systemic disease. So in local staging, in, in surgical staging, 
uh, the physicians are looking for a very risky group, 3C1, in order to find a even worse group, 3C2, in order to know how they positive paraortic nodes in order to give a, a systemic condition, a local regional treatment. This is this, this makes no sense to me. I, I think we need to discuss about the, the real utility of doing a surgical staging, particularly after a negative, clear negative randomized clinical trial. So I'm I in the other side of surgical staging because of the reason that that, that I mentioned. Yeah, I, I agree with you. And I think that, you know, certainly um, in, in the setting of gross disease, then it's more about actually potentially removing a lymph node that will not be able to be controlled by radiation therapy. But outside of that setting, you know, certainly I think there are many institutions that in the setting of positive pelvic lymph nodes, the field of radiation, it's already extended um, and, and, you know, certainly perhaps not up to the, uh, to the renal vessels, but definitely if there's positive lymph nodes that that's going to be extended. So, uh, outside of a clinical trial, I don't see, um, a, a valid rationale for recommendation of, uh, of surgical staging. Yes. And another issue is the contaminators in the, in the literature, because you can put the authors put patients with locally extended fields after having common iliac nodes, but include patients in surgical arms with grossly nodal involvement at paraortic area. And ha having grossly nodal involvement is a quite different condition of having no imaging visible nodes at the paraortic area. Also include neoadjuvant chemotherapy, also include patients without receiving brachytherapy, patients with uh, abandoned radical hysterectomy. So there is a huge heterogeneity in the respect in the retrospective studies regarding the inclusion criteria for a patient with pelvic node involvement without periodic node involvement in PET-CT. Yeah, and Iman should mention that there is uh, an ongoing uh, study looking at surgical staging from uh, France um, and that, uh, you know, certainly uh, those who are interested, it's a Parola trial, and uh, those who are interested should be uh, um, looking at exploring opening this as an option in their respective uh, institutions. Now, uh, Renee, one last uh, question. I want to talk about recurrent disease. And of course, obviously, always a challenge. Um, now, many options, fortunately, for patients with recurrent disease, particularly with uh, with immunotherapy. Um, but as it pertains to surgery, and of course, obviously, we have the option of exenteration for patients. But um, I was curious also to see in the ESCO guidelines that there was a mention regarding uh, a consideration for the Lear procedure, the lateral extended uh, resection in, in patients that have uh, sidewall involvement. Um, what what are you, what are your thoughts with regards to this recommendation? Uh, thank you, Pedro, for mentioning it. Uh, I am concerned about that because in the guidelines they call them out of the box procedures, and out of the box means everything that you can do is it possible to do. The Lear procedure. Uh, I remember a, a paper by Hackel. I think it's Hackel, including hundred patients and performing Lear. So resecting the obturator muscles, 
the piriform muscle and sometimes uh, with the vascular graftings in order to improve the local control of patients, not candidates for excentration, but candidates for Lear procedures. I think there are few groups and few surgeons in, in the real world able to do this kind of procedures. And the literature we have to support them is just retrospective. I think quite difficult to try to evaluate this in a prospective way because the training and the knowledge for performing this kind of procedures, the support after the surgery, the morbidity related with the surgery, it, it could be high. So I think when you consider out of the box procedures, you are opening a door that once open cannot be closed. <laughs> Anything can be offered to those patients. I'm afraid of that. Well, Rene, thank you so, so much. Uh, it's always uh, so much uh, fun, and I learned so much in uh, discussing uh, cervical cancer with you. Um, I truly appreciate your your time, and uh, thank you for accepting our invitation, and thank you for all that you have done and continue to do, not only for women with uh, gynecologic cancers, but also for so many doctors and trainees and surgeons in, uh, in Latin America and low and middle income countries. So thank you so much. Thank you, Pedro, for having me. Always a pleasure being here.